The title of the message this morning is, Who Are You Really? I ask that question not because you're all so far away. <laughs> um, the building committee met this week, and when that committee meets, things happen. I just can't wait till next week to see what else is different. So let me just explain a little bit. What we're trying to do, coming up with ideas, how we can make things easier and, and we're looking towards a big project possibly. And so what, essentially what we're trying to do is add a little bit more seating in the, uh, in the sanctuary so everybody feels a little bit more comfortable. So um, if you don't feel comfortable this morning, the reason is, is you're sitting too far back. You need to move up a couple benches. We add a couple in the front. So you're all invited. Invited. We won't make it mandatory um, unless you don't do it voluntarily. Then you'll be voluntold as I'm told that's a word. Anyway, so the building committee is meeting. They've got some, lots of ideas. So um, if you have any questions on the what, the where, the why, and all of that, you can talk to any of them. If you're on the building committee, raise your hand. Okay, Jeannie's going to Florida, so she's going to be in the sunny south. Uh, Jim's going to Michigan, and uh, so you have to see Tim or Phyllis or Jeremy um, if you really want to, anyway, for the next couple weeks. Who are you really? How you identify is currently probably the biggest issue in our culture. And there seems to be no limits to how people identify. But there is an identity that is far greater than your gender or non-gender or whatever. And that's what we want to talk about this, mor this morning. All of us have been asked the question, who are you? And we always begin by stating who we are. We give our name. That's how we identify. That identifies who we are. But we never stop there, or rarely do we stop there. We're constantly trying to find ways to, to broaden that, to actually to make our world a little bit smaller. How do we identify? My name is Mike Bender, and then I add clarification to that. It's really who I identify with. What am I a part of? Those details that we give typically will tie us into a family or into a group or even to a place. In a couple weeks, we'll be attending CMC's Minister's Conference in Northern Ohio. And in that setting, I'll have a name tag that will have my name and there'll be a, a title underneath that that says Turkey Run Mennonite Church. So when people see that, they'll identify me as by my name, but then they'll instantly know, oh, I know where you, I know who you associate with. I know where you belong. And depending on who I'm speaking with, I'll have to think about it. I may be known better to them as Ruth's husband. Or I may be and probably this is more likely the case, I'm Wilbur Bender's son. Or, if they're younger, I'll be known by one of my children because, well, they went to Rosedale with them, so that's the connection. 
And where we were born can also come into the conversation. It helps us to identify. Recently, we were in Florida, and Ruth and I spent a day on, on the beach, and we were at Crooked Island Beach in, in Florida. And I noticed a car as we were leaving the parking lot. It had this little teardrop-shaped camper. And I thought to myself, how do they even get into those? And then once they get in, how do you get out? Anyway, so I told Ruth, I want to talk to that guy. And she, well, she wasn't quite so sure. And, but, but we, and then I noticed the license plate. They were from Ohio. Hey, now we've got connections, right? We identified because we were from the same state. So I pulled up, you know, swung around so he could see me coming, pulled up along his window, and it was just a young man sitting in there. And uh, I rolled down the window. His window was down. And I, I mentioned his cute little camper and had a couple, you know, questions. And then I said, I noticed that you have an Ohio license plate. Where are you from? And he said, from Canton. Oh, well, I was born in Canton. It's like, you see, I mean, we were practically related. <laughs> we weren't. And so we had, you know, a couple more just incidentals, and then I could tell that he, uh, he really wasn't interested in the conversation. So the astute man that I am, I decided it was time to move on, and so we did. But see how, what happens as we introduce ourselves. It's kind of, we draw those kind of connections. How are we identified? Who are we, really? It's not so much who we are, but where do we belong? Who do we belong to? That's on the physical level. But the spiritual level is to be even greater. Remember last week, Marvin talked, he read an article, a piece of an article by Joe Belts from World Magazine from a number of years ago, I believe. And in that, he talked how they visited a neighborhood church, and they found out that that church was on the, on the verge of closing because they didn't have enough people to keep it open. And as I've, I've been reading a lot about church history, Anabaptist history, this church's history, and so that's all been floating in my mind for the last month or so. Maybe one of the reasons that there's, we spend too much time and energy on, on our denominational identities and not on the one who makes us a brotherhood, who joins us all together, the Lord Jesus Himself. So often I've started conversations this way. I'll ask someone, do you attend church anywhere? And because that question immediately starts a conversation, and if they answer, well, no, I don't, well, then it becomes more of kind of introducing, you know, more of an, an evangelistic track. You know, you're going that way. You know, is there any reason why? You know, and, and so it's it just... Depending on the answer, you form your questions accordingly. But if the answer is yes, well then the next question is, where? So the question, do you attend church, is one thing. But if, if you were asked the question, do you attend church? And you answer, well, yes, I do. And then they say, where? Now what do you say? Well, I attend Trigger and Mennonite Church. You what? Okay, so what is a Mennonite? You ever been asked that? 
until you pull out your card and this is what a Mennonite is. And then it keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Okay, who, what is a Mennonite? Maybe you begin to squirm and you're not quite sure how to answer that question. But you know what? Any denomination has the same issue. Or whether you're of no denomination at all. What is a Baptist? What is a Methodist? What is a Presbyterian? And what in the world is an Episcopalian? I mean, think about it. How do you explain those denominations? So back to the question, who are you really? Let's open our Bibles to Acts chapter 19. I want to begin there this morning because it, Paul is in the city of Ephesus. And, and our text this morning is from the book of Ephesians, the book that he, the letter that he wrote to that church, but in, as he's traveling on his second missionary journey, Paul is in the city of Ephesus. He spends two years there. And Luke tells us in Acts chapter 19 that Paul runs into 12 disciples. Luke doesn't define, doesn't tell us who these disciples were. He doesn't give any names. He doesn't identify them. He just simply says they were 12 disciples. There were these, they were disciples, he said. Later we learn that there was 12 of them. Well, they weren't Jesus' disciples because they were elsewhere or, or gone. It becomes apparent as we read through this text that they were disciples of John because of Paul's questions to them that identified who they were. Now notice what he does. He asks them a question. Did you receive the Holy Spirit? He knew they were disciples and probably of John. He knew something had happened to them. Somehow he could tell. We're not given that information. But did you receive the Holy Spirit? He's trying to figure out who these 12 men were on the spiritual level. He didn't care, well, what city are you from? Are you from Canton or are you from Athens? He didn't care. He wanted to know on the spiritual level, who were they? That's what's important. Now let's back up a second. We may get the impression that when John the Baptist was baptizing in the Jordan River, when you know, we remember that Jesus was baptized as well, that he was, as people came up out of the water, that John was immediately pointing them, okay, now go down and go to the Jesus table. And now that you've repented, now he'll, we'll finish, you know, we'll get you to sign, we'll, you can sign the church covenant, okay? So they would get baptized, and then they'd get ushered over, and then they'd become Christians, and then they're in the church and all that. That's not how it was. John preached a message of repentance. He was the forerunner of the Lord Jesus. And it's possible that John didn't even know when he started to baptize who Jesus was. He was a cousin, but they didn't have family reunions, I don't suspect. But all he knew is that he was the one who was to bring the message of the Gospel, that the Messiah was coming and we need to prepare for His coming and it begins with repentance. Unless you repent, repent he said, 
John, if you, if you look at what John said, most of the time it was almost a threat. Even one group, the Pharisees, said, you brood of vipers. Can you imagine? You're a bunch of snakes. What are you doing here? That'll, that'll really get you liked by a lot of people. I suspect the, uh, the ad that Derek talked about this morning, they probably won't say that. <laughs> All right? Because that would tend to turn people off. But John knew who they were. He knew their hearts. Anyway, unless you repent, unless you clean up your act, you have to do that. And then in Luke chapter 3, we're told that their response to that message when many of these people heard this, when John was baptized, what should we do? How do we, how do we clean up our act? And he gives them a list. He says, if, if you're a tax collector, don't take more than you're required to take by the government. If you're a soldier, don't extort anything from people. Just do your job. So he gives specific details to those that it involved. So back to Paul's question. Did you receive the Holy Spirit? And their response was, we've never even heard that there was a Holy Spirit. And then Paul says, then what baptism did you receive? And they said, well, John's. Okay, now Paul understands. Okay, they were baptized by John in the Jordan River. They had a baptism of repentance. But that was all. That's as far as it went. And then Paul goes on, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him. That is Jesus. Now let's jump back to denominations for a second, or non-denominations. The questions are always to, designed to dig deeper. We want to know what people believe. I remember standing up at Ebenezer Church a number of years ago when they were still in the old building, there was something going on. And it was, it was one evening and after church, we were standing out front, there was a number of us there. And a neighbor, and I remember his name, Bob Stamper, I've never seen him since or before that. He asked the question, what's the difference between a Mennonite and a Baptist? If I'd have thought quick enough, because Steve Hubbard was standing there, I'd have said, well, Bapt or Mennonites are always the best looking, but I didn't think of it fast enough. But how would, we, how would we answer that question? We both believe in Jesus, right? Maybe we could say this. Maybe how we identify, what is a Mennonite? Maybe we could say that the Sermon on the Mount is our manifesto. We, we strive to live out the Sermon on the Mount, daily. Now that doesn't mean everybody else doesn't, or nobody else does. It just means that's where we place our focus. You don't have to think about that. In fact, Jesus asked His own disciples the same question. Who do men say that I am? And then who do you say that I am? Because the most basic question that we ask someone, we want to know, who is Jesus? How do you identify Him? Who is He? Because that tells us a lot about their faith journey, their walk, where they are, what they believe about the Lord Jesus. So in Acts chapter 19, back there, Paul, by his questions, is able to determine that these 12 men 
were what we would call incomplete Christians. Yes, they had replanted, and they were attempting to change their ways, but they were incomplete because changing your ways won't save you. Last week, Ruth and I were up in Amish country, and I picked up a little magazine in one of the stores, and there's these little, a whole list of sayings. And there's this one. The way to heaven is to turn right and keep straight. And we both thought, well, that's just pretty neat. But it's not the way to heaven. To turn right and keep straight? Isn't that what they were doing? They had repented and now they were trying to live in a way that reflected that? That doesn't save us. All it, can identify, all it can do is identify us as a good person to turn right and keep straight. But back in Acts 19, Paul takes these three disciples because they need to, they need to move on from their repentance. They need to move to the next step. They need the Holy Spirit is what they need. And Paul knows that. So for three months, he takes these men and he teaches. He's reasoning and persuading in the synagogue the kingdom of God. For three months he does this. The message of Jesus Christ. And the response is not all good. Some become stubborn and refuse to believe and they even began to speak against this new teaching and those who followed it. So Paul decides, you know what? I'm not getting anywhere here. I've done what I can do. So he, he leaves the synagogue and for two years... He teaches daily, it says, in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. Now one thing we need to know about Ephesus, Ephesus was, um, there was a city center and then there were villages that surround it. So, so when the word spread, it went to all these different villages, kind of like here. You know, we have an, a Logan address, but we're nine miles from Logan. But we're still considered part of the, the environs of Logan. So that's how, that's how it was. And... How could people spend, who came to hear him every day as he talked in this hall of Tyrannus? It is said that in Ephesus, because of lying close to the coast in the country of modern-day Turkey, that there were more people asleep at 1 p.m. than there were at 1 a.m. Huh, that sounds just like me. Because of the heat of the day, people, they started work very early, and then in the center of the day, they stopped working because of the heat, and then they would commence later. So it's probably during that time that people, when they stopped working, they would go to listen to Paul. He did that for two years. And as a result of what Paul was doing, in Acts chapter 19, verses 11 and 12, we learn this. God gave Paul the power to perform unusual miracles when handkerchiefs or aprons that had merely touched his skin were placed on sick people, they were healed of their diseases, and evil spirits were expelled. That's incredible. I've never seen anything like that. None of us have, probably. But why did God give him that power? Well, if we look at that culture, the Greek-Roman culture, great importance was placed upon magical incantations and spells. They were highly superstitious and they were drawn to the supernatural. 
We go back to Egypt, much like in Egypt, when Moses, God told Moses, you do these certain miracles and it's, it will speak to these people. Because they had the same, kind of the same, it spoke to them. It was the mindset. Now jump down in verse 19, it gives us some more details. It says, a number of them who had been practicing sorcery brought their incantation books and burned them at a public bonfire. So that tells us what kind of culture the Ephesians lived in, what kind of culture they had. They were highly superstitious. They believed in spells and incantations and so on. Now look at verse 13. Then some of the itinerant or traveling Jewish exorcists, it says, they went around casting out demons. They undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus, using it as an incantation, over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. There were seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva that were doing this. And we know the story. But when they did this, the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, Paul I recognize, but who are you? You see what? They had no identification. They had no authority. They weren't identified with Jesus. They had no right to use his name as an incantation, as a spell to cast out an evil spirit. And the demons knew that. There are many incomplete Christians today that know about Jesus, but have no, as we would say, personal relationship with him. How do you get to know someone? You have to talk with them. You have to learn from them how they think, what drives them. I had to think of Todd. We know what his passion is. He's going to Mardi Gras. Why would anybody in their right mind go to Mardi Gras? One reason. Because Todd and those others are going to take Jesus into that place. That is their passion. That is their calling. That is their duty before God. And what happens there is up to God. They are just going to send them to give the message. So how, how, does, how do they identify? They identify with the Lord Jesus and He is the one that works through them. But there are many incomplete Christians today who know about Jesus, know the stories, but don't know his passion, don't know how he thinks, don't know what he wants, don't know his desires or what he's asking of any of us. These seven sons of Sceva, they call on Jesus because, well, this will benefit us. We'll get some clout. We'll have some authority. A lot of people are that way. When we're in great need, then we cry out to the, oh God, help us. Otherwise, we don't pay any attention, or many don't. So it is to this group of people in the city of Ephesus that Paul writes this letter. Ephesians chapter 1. To the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. As we know, the church started in the city of Jerusalem. And it was mainly made up, almost entirely made up, of Jews. 
But the church was rapidly and radically changing as the gospel, the good news, spread. And more Gentiles were hearing the gospel message and were coming to faith in the Lord Jesus. And it was hard on the church. And Paul's letter to the Ephesians is for both. Because there were Jews in Ephesus. There was a synagogue there. Paul spoke there for three weeks. Two weeks. Whatever it was. The Jews, as we know, were set apart by God as His own peculiar people. And as we read through the Old Testament, they were, complete, they were to be completely separate from everyone else. We read of a few outsiders who joined the Jewish faith, but very few. For generations, they, all they had known about the world was that we are to have nothing to do with it. Nothing. So it's understandable how easy it would be for them to put great stock in their Jewishness. We are the children of Abraham. We are God's children. We are different. We were chosen by Him specifically. We are special. God likes us and He hates everybody else. Or doesn't like them near as much. That's all they knew. So as many of these Jews became convinced that Jesus was the long-awaited, the long-prophesied Messiah, the Christ, imagine how difficult it was for them to accept outsiders into the church. And the Gentiles that believed and became part of the church, they knew all about that separation. They knew all about how it was to be treated by Jews. You're dirty. We don't want anything to do with you. you won't eat. They wouldn't even touch a Gentile. Remember the story of the Good Samaritan? They'd actually cross the road and walk down the other side just so they wouldn't have to touch them. And so these are now coming into the church. This is who Paul is writing to. Who are we really? We are in Christ. That changes everything. He begins his letter with a prayer. Grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He wanted them to be to receive, to be immersed in the incredible, all-consuming grace and peace of God. All of them, Jew and Gentile. I mean, imagine, to those Jews who had lived their whole lives to be clean, they wouldn't touch an unclean food. They wouldn't touch a dead body. They wouldn't touch a Gentile. And now they're sitting beside a Gentile in the same pew who had lived a horrendous, dirty, sinful life. Can you imagine how hard that would be? Because the Jews were just plain good people. And sitting to next to someone who had enough baggage to fill a train car was hard. Paul continues, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us 
in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. It's interesting that word blessed in most of our Bibles is used twice in that verse, in that sentence. It's not a word that we use regularly unless we will tell somebody, you know, God bless you, or if somebody sneezes, then we say, bless you. The word appears twice in this verse, and it has two different meanings. The first, as some translations have it, means all praise, or worthy of praise. The second means to speak well of, to invoke a blessing upon. It's something good. So we could read it this way, all praise to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has conferred on us in Christ every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Paul is stating that we are to have a new identity. Who are you? I am in Christ. And that phrase, that simple phrase, in Christ, I understand is packed full of meaning. meaning. And so let's look at that. All of the blessings that we receive, everything we receive, is in Christ. It's through Christ, is from Christ. We bring nothing to the table except empty hands and broken hearts. Our salvation was His idea. It was his idea not after we sinned, not after Adam ate the fruit, not after we were conceived, but long before. In fact, Paul says in verse 4, before the foundation of the world, God had this planned. Before the first grain of sand or the first drop of water were created, God had the whole of human history laid out before him. He saw it all. He knew every detail of everything. We can't fathom that, but he did. It's like seeing the, the timeline in the gym entrance room. The whole of human history. God saw it all. It's right there, every detail. He saw it. He knew it. And he had a plan. He saw all the suffering in this world. He saw that over 23,000 would die from these earthquakes in Syria and in Turkey. Think of it, 23,000. It's a lot of people. But think of this. He also saw that over 6 million Jews, his own chosen people, the descendants of Abraham, would die in the Holocaust at the hands not of a natural disaster, but of humans, from humans. And he had a great plan of restoration and redemption for this broken, dying creation because of sin. He had an answer for it that he planned long before any of it was created. So how has he blessed us how has he put his identifying mark upon us? It's interesting, it says, with every spiritual blessing. Every means there's more than one. It means there's a lot of them. We'll only get to maybe one or two this morning. The blessings are not physical. Although he gives those as well. He gives life, he gives breath, he gives sunshine, 
He gives rain. He gives rust. He gives work. In the Old Testament, He gave all these promises to the, to the Jews, to the children of Israel. If you obey Me, your crops will increase, your herds will increase, your families will increase, even your kneading bowls where you knead your bread will be overflowing. He blessed them physically for their obedience. But that all went away. It was all lost. It, was, it all comes to an end. But not in the spiritual. The greatest blessings are spiritual, meaning they are of the Spirit of God. One thing I've thought long and hard about, and, and maybe this is it's probably a reaction more so than anything else, we don't get, I don't think we give enough thought or credit to the importance of the work of the Holy Spirit in the lives of His children, in us. We know He's there, we know He's busy, we know He's doing stuff, but we don't think about what He, what he is actually doing enough. We need to. Even the Lord Jesus, think of this, He needed the Holy Spirit before He could ever begin His work on earth. You wonder if that's true. Look at all four Gospels. They record this, his baptism in the Jordan River by, the, by John. All of them say that they saw the, the, the Holy Spirit descending as a dove and remaining on him. Now, was that just an identification thing? Oh, okay. So this dove, did they know it was the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit came in the form of the dove. His disciples knew that eventually. But the Holy Spirit had to come on the Lord Jesus Himself in order for Him to do the work that He did on this earth. Why? Because He was complete human. He was a man. And as a man, He could not do what He did without the Holy Spirit working in Him and through Him. So what are the spiritual blessings that we have been given in Christ? Who are we? And how does it define us? Well, the number one, number one I have is the forgiveness of sin. The whole sacrificial system in the Old Testament was given as a temporary measure to cover sin, not remove it. The animal must be free of defect as far as was humanly possible. And it, was never, it could never be completely, absolutely perfect. That animal did not willingly give its life for the sinner. It was taken from it. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 11 tells us that day after day the priest stood and performed his duties. Again and again he offered the same sacrifices which can never take away sin. It's like taking out the garbage. So every year the garbage bag of my sin is full we take it out, we dump it in the dumpster, and that's what they did. They'd offer these sacrifices, and then we put a clean bag in the garbage can and wait for that to fill up. You see how just over and over and over. It could never take away sin. It could only cover it. The whole system kept God at a distance and unapproachable. In Hebrews chapter 12, it tells us we haven't come to a mountain at Mount Sinai where the mountain was on fire, it was covered in cloud, it shook, it thundered, God spoke, His voice thundered, and the people were just completely devastated. They were absolutely terrified. 
to the point where they said, Moses, don't let God speak to us. We can't handle it. And Moses himself, he said, was, he trembled because of what he heard and saw. But Hebrews 12 tells us, we haven't come to a mountain like that where God is unapproachable to the point of even an animal touches that mountain, it must be stoned. But we have come to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly. I mean, think of it. They're in heaven today. Thousands upon thousands praising the holy God and watching us. And surrounding them are all those who have gone on before who have been made righteous and perfect. And Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant. When we receive that salvation that He offers, He gives us His Holy Spirit to take up permanent residence within us. Now think of it. So if you are a believer this morning, the Holy Spirit has come into you. It's living in you. It's the same Spirit that hovered over the waters before creation. It's the same Spirit who empowered Samson. It's the same Spirit who came upon Mary. It's the same Spirit that descended on the Lord Jesus when He came out of the Jordan River. That same Spirit dwells in you. So who are you really? I walked in this morning and I asked Kurt, how are you doing? He said, great. He said, how are you? And I said, good. And he said, oh, just good? No, I'm great. I'm fantastic. <laughs> With all the human ailments and all of that. Too often I think, of our, I think that we think of ourselves as a sinner struggling to turn right and to stay straight. We just, we just plugging along. We're just, man, it's such hard work. In this world, we are known by numbers. Did you know that? Two. That will be the number that I will be known as till after I'm dead. You all have numbers like that. All right? Your social security number. Anyway. But not in God's kingdom. No. If you are a follower of the Lord Jesus... You have been bought by His blood. You are filled with His Holy Spirit. We are redeemed. We are created in His image. We are a child of the living God. And we have all of the privileges that comes from God our Father who desperately loves us. Now, go act like one. That's where the challenge comes. I truly believe that the longer we walk faithfully with the Lord Jesus, sin should become less and less. Satan and his tactics, he changes them, he brings this, he brings that. But he learns pretty quick, I'm going to leave that guy alone because he never does what I tell him. We should get to that place where our thoughts are completely saturated before I spout out something. I just need to shut up and listen to the Holy Spirit. Okay, how do I respond when I'm asked to do something that I don't have time to do? Or some, whatever else. We are a blood 
bought, Holy Spirit-filled, redeemed, recreated in the image of God, child of His, whom He desperately loves. Amen? We are. So when you walk out this room, I hope you understand a little better just who you really are. I want to close this morning, and it's late, so let's all stand. I was going to have us sing a song, but I want to just read the last, uh, in Hebrews chapter 13, it's a benediction. And I remember growing up as a kid in Marlboro Mennonite Church, the pastor we had at those times, he, he ended every single message with this. And let's pray together. May God, may, now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do His will, working in us that which is pleasing in His sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. God bless you. You are dismissed.